I hope that you're enjoying the Apostles' Creed as a series. I think it's very instructive for us. It's very orthodox for us. It's a, a bit of a catechism for us to maybe redefine, re-understand what we believe. Uh, if you're uh, not listening to the podcast, I would encourage you to listen to the, to the weekly podcast. It's almost like a, a second part of the message. Uh, if you have questions about what's happening here on Sunday morning, I'm going to preach about Mary today. Brace yourself. You need to send the questions in. Don't wonder what we believe. Don't, don't hear what I didn't say. <laughs> Just text the question in and we'll be glad to answer it very straightforwardly in the podcast. I want to begin, if you guys don't mind in the booth, I want to begin with a picture. This is a picture that has captivated me. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this uh, illustration before. It actually hangs in a monastery. Mary Consoles Eve is the title of this. I want you to take this in for a minute. Do you feel the emotion of this for just a moment? I want you to look at Eve's downcast expression. Write your own caption. What in the world have I done? What in the world have we done? How in the world will this get fixed and made right? See the serpent wrapped around her leg? See Mary standing on the head of the serpent over there? Right out of Genesis chapter number 3. A little liberty taken, but right out of Genesis 3. Eve's downcast eyes, Mary saying, It'll be made right. Reach over here and feel this. Feel him kick. There's the answer to your problem. And this is God's doing. Now I want you just to bury that back into your mind for a moment. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we begin this morning. Things to get your mind working in a, in a healthy direction. Here's the first one, and you may think this is out of left field, but how would you describe the area where God appears? Don't answer out loud. I want you to be thinking of your answer, and I'll come back to this here in a minute. How would you describe the area when God appears? You should be thinking about that. Try to come up with one word or so if you can. Let me give you a, pose a second thesis question to you this morning. Do I believe the biblical account of Jesus' birth? Do I really? Teenagers, I want you to be asking yourself this question. Do I literally, really believe the biblical account as it presents the birth of Jesus Christ. And I think with that tension in your heart this morning, you're ready for what God has to say about what you're seeing on the screen behind me, what you're thinking about. Let me begin right here. Everyone knows that something is wrong with humanity. I would not have to argue this thesis to you. You know intuitively, you know innately, you know personally... That something is wrong with humanity, but the question is, how in the world can it ever be fixed? All of us sense that we are somehow living below what God has planned for us and designed for us. We also know that. We sense that something is just not quite right about our own physical bodies. Sickness comes in from nowhere, emotions we can't control, fears we can't control, anxieties we have no idea how to deal with. Sickness and death, when they intrude into our lives, seem completely unnatural, like they don't belong. Nothing is more awkward than a funeral home. Adjust the lights just right, get the makeup out, do everything you can to make it feel right. It will never feel right. Because you weren't designed for death. It's unnatural. You were made to live, not die. 
You were made to prosper and multiply and rule and be living images of the Holy God. You weren't made for fear and anxiety and depression and sickness and everything else that we're dealing with. Gosh, I feel like I could bend your ear for a long time on this subject, but time will not allow me. Let me just say something's off drastically. You say with what? With the whole thing. With me, with you, with the environment, with the earth, with human relations. Something's off with religion. We are broken. We want to dominate one another. We want to overthrow our neighbor. We want to control our spouse. We want to dominate our grown children. We want to control... I could bend your ear for a while about what's broken. Let me just see if I can get us all to agree. Something is very, very much broken. We have an internal longing for love and for justice and for peace and for happiness. Something inside of us yearns for this world to be set right. And so the Bible enters into our equation because there are no other answers. The Bible enters into our thoughts and our minds and our hearts and the Bible begins to tell us that in order to fix what is wrong with humanity and with the earth that God will indeed send a fixer. Amen. I'm not sure how to describe him. He's a fixer. Amen. Whatever's broken, he's going to fix it. This is his specialty. God is going to send a fixer and the way he's going to fix what is broken in the kingdom is by sending a king. So he's going to send a king who knows how to fix a broken kingdom. And here's the good news we've already studied in the Apostles' Creed about God the Father Almighty. And we are so thankful this morning that God is an initiator. He doesn't just react. He doesn't just respond. That God is an initiator. And thankfully God the Father is not passive when it comes to dealing with us and with humanity. Thankfully God is a Father who interjects Himself into our lives quite frequently. By the way, parents of earthly children are not to be passive. You're to be engaged in the lives of your children. Which means there are times when you must interject your presence into their scenario. You don't just sit back and say, wow, it's not going the way I want it to go. Then buckle up your belt, sir, and interject yourself. Madam, gird up your loins and interject yourself into their lifestyle and say, here I am, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, and we're here to help. Parents are also fixers. They are a little bit of God in the family to fix and to help and to come through with resources and to bring peace and to bring joy and to help con uh, resolve conflict and to do all the things that a loving Heavenly Father wants to do for us. Many times God has interrupted the daily grind on planet Earth with His divine interventions, and that's what your whole Bible's about. If you've read the Old Testament and the New, God just shows up out of the blue and just starts getting Himself involved in the affairs of people. God does not remain distant. God does not remain unconcerned. He is a caring and involved Father. Now that's a bit of the Old Testament, and as you open the New Testament... Now God is going to do the big thing that He's been planning for some time. His magnum opus, if you would, is about to begin. He's about to do the greatest thing that God ever did. And His greatest work was when God, out of love for humanity like you and I, came to this earth as a human. It's the biggest thing God ever did. Incredible to even comprehend how God would become one of us in the form of a human. Which brings us to the Apostles' Creed statement this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Amen. There are two detailed accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ. In your New Testament, this would be Matthew chapter number 1. The Christmas passages That's what you call them. This is Matthew chapter number 1, and this is Luke chapters number 1 and 2. For sake of time this morning, I'm going to deal only with Luke chapter 1. 
And in the podcast uh, Tuesday, when we cut the podcast, it'll take a day or so to edit, but when it's released midweek, it'll deal with a little bit of Luke, and then I'll lead over into Matthew and explain the Matthew account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let me begin with Luke's Jesus backstory. I've worded this very carefully because I want, I want this to get into your thinking. Luke's Jesus backstory. I want to show you in just a moment how Luke begins his gospel. When I use the word gospel, we call these first four books of the New Testament gospels because gospel is a story about Jesus. We summarize even more sometimes and say about the death, burial, resurrection and appearance or ascension of Jesus, but a gospel is a Jesus story, okay? It's a good news story about Jesus and his life. As Luke begins his gospel, uh, what I want you to see this morning is Luke begins telling the story of Jesus by telling the story of somebody else. Now, on face value, this seems ridiculous. I want to tell you the story of Sarah. So let me begin by telling you the story of Letty. And you're like, why? This is disjointed and I don't understand why you're telling us Letty's story when you've written a book about Sarah. If you're going to write about Sarah, then just write about Sarah and tell us about her. Why would you go tell us the story of someone else in order to tell us the story of someone else? It's quite curious the way that Luke begins his gospel. But Luke obviously believed that the story of Jesus must have a backstory. There's the simple conclusion. Why does it begin with the backstory? Because of Luke's the one writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Luke says, you can't tell this story without a backstory. So I'm going to tell you the backstory. <clears throat> there is something that I'm about to read to you in a minute. There is something about Mary's pregnancy. And there is something about Jesus' birth that is so unusual that you're going to need a backstory to comprehend who Jesus really is. So Luke doesn't just open. Now the birth of Christ was on this wise. He's not going to launch right into the birth of Christ. Instead, Luke says, I'm going to tell the story of Jesus. Hold that thought. And Luke backs up six months on the timeline to tell you the story of someone else. And as he starts telling this other story, this backstory. We found ourselves gripped in the drama of an ordinary family. Ordinary family. You know what they're doing? They're doing what we do every day. They get up and go to work. Laundry. Take out the trash. Buy groceries. Cook food. Get your kid. They do what you do. Now the one twist is they don't have kids. They're an ordinary family going through the routines they've done all their lives, when I say all their lives, all their lives, because these are not young people in the backstory. These are old people. Their names are Zachariah and Elizabeth. And when they're presented to us in Luke's backstory, he tells us they are very old. They're well beyond childbearing years. And they live in a culture we automatically know that openly mocks women who are barren. Now, when you read the backstory, the story is intentionally designed to pull you back into the Old Testament mentality. Luke has orchestrated the words in such a way, I want to present you with an old couple, way old man, way old woman, they can't have children, wanted children all their life, longed for children, can't have children, and they're just doing what they do. They're serving, they're working, they're cleaning, they're cooking, they're, they're, they're doing what they do. The story is intentionally designed to make your mind go all the way back to Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis. Longing for the promise of God to be fulfilled, well past childbearing years, up in age, as one author says, practically in the grave. And then God shows up to do something. And how they're going to have a miracle baby now in their old age. The story of Luke is intentionally designed to get you to go back and think about Rachel, who can't have children, and is pouring her heart out to God for children. And finally, two sons come from the offspring of Jacob. The story is designed intentionally to get your mind to go back 
to the book of Judges and hear a woman crying and begging God for a child, and Samson is born. The story is designed to get into your head so that you're thinking, there was a woman in the Old Testament named Hannah who went to the house of God and begged for a child and prayed for a child and yearned for a child. And finally God said, okay, and a child you will have, madam. That's the setup that Luke is getting your head into. He's getting your mind ready and he wants you to know that Unusual births are not unheard of in the story of Israel. Unusual births are part and parcel of the story of God's plan to restore His kingdom. That God has worked in unusual ways throughout the history of Israel. And when God wanted to show up and do a miracle thing through a barren woman and an old man, then God just showed up and He did exactly as He planned to do and showed you how in every one of those people they would be a game changer for their generation, how they would do something very unique to help advance the narrative of God restoring His kingdom and His kingdom coming to earth. Now, also you need to know this, that Luke's setting you up to make you understand there are no Pharisees here in the story. There are no rulers here in the story. Ordinary people are in the story. And that when he presents God doing miraculous things, he's presenting ordinary people whose lives are being filled with the presence of God and they begin to do extraordinary things. And these are just people who do what people normally do. They live in faith. They live in devotion. Does this sound familiar? They come and pray on Wednesday night. They come and worship on Sunday. They go to work on Monday. They get their kids ready to go to school. They do what they do, but they do it in faith and devotion to Almighty God, and they're just willing every day and ready every day for God to show up and do whatever God wants to do. And lo and behold, some days God shows up. And that's really the story this morning, and He's going to act. The story also is designed in a way to remind you that our needs and our fears and our hopes are not forgotten by God. I know I'm the only one who ever feels that way, that sometimes God's not listening and forgets the things I need. And I have to get on my knees and remind Him of all the things I need and want and hope for and long for. But the story is designed in such a way to remind you that God has not forgotten you. And that God has not forgotten what He said in His Word. And that God will come through and deliver His people. And when God acts to do a big thing, He also remembers all the little things that make our lives peaceful and joyful. He remembers all the little things that you and I have to have to live. All the little things. I mean... Listen, some days we're not worried about a miracle, we're just worried about getting through the day. We're just worried about paychecks and tennis shoes and pizzas and transportation and transmissions and gasoline. And We're just worried about the little things. The story is designed in such a way to let you know that God knows about the little things as well. Zachariah and Elizabeth were not expecting to be the backstory of some dramatic thing. But John... The one you'll call the baptizer is now on the way. I'm reading the story from Luke 1.5. In the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth also was a descendant of Aaron. They're of the priestly tribe. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Faithful people, just doing what faithful people do, waiting for God to show up in his sight. But they were childless, verse 7, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. I never thought about it till right now. How would you like for to be the subject matter of a book in the Bible? Just struck me just now. How would you like for God to talk about your inability to conceive to all the world and what happens in your bedroom, what happens in your family, and what, how, how you might be broken in some way enters into the biblical narrative. We need to have a little love and respect for these people. Their whole lives are laid bare before us to examine and to critique. And this could not be a, a comfortable thing. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Verse 8. 
Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he's again part of the priesthood in, in the temple, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah's going inside. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the temple, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. Now, there's a whole side story that I don't have time to tell here how Zechariah and Elizabeth are like, we don't have any family members named John. This is not a family name. And God, There's a whole other story here. But the angel has just appeared and said, John the Baptist is on the way. Now, that's the backstory. Luke has told you that story to get you ready for an even bigger surprise. And here's the even bigger surprise that Luke wants to tell you. Jesus is going to be conceived in Mary's womb before she has sexual relations. That's the big story he's about to tell you. But he knows he can't launch right into that. First, let me tell you another story. Here's some old people who couldn't have kids. And the angel shows up and says, you're going to have kids. Just to show you that God is in the baby making business. And I would say to you, if you want children and can't have them, let the church pray over you. God's in control of life. And we've seen a lot of miracle babies born. I'll remind you, don't drink from the water fountain either. It's quite the fountain of youth back there. I want to say this to you. The gospel writers took a big risk. Matthew and Luke took a big risk to include this level of detail into the story. Why did they take such a risk? Open them up to all kinds of criticism for 2,000 years. Why did they take such a risk to put this level of detail into the story? It was a risk they took because it was what they actually believed to be true. Now Luke, without any further ado, fast forwards the story six months. I read now from verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this is the old woman who's now pregnant. Now he's going to tie the two stories together. He's fast forwarded six months. It was the sixth month now of Elizabeth's pregnancy that God sent the angel Gabriel To Nazareth, northern Israel. We were in southern Israel with Elizabeth and Zechariah down by the temple in Jerusalem. Now we're going all the way up to Galilee to Nazareth on the north side of of the Jezreel Valley. Now Gabriel appears in Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, you'll see the quotes here in the NIV, The angel starts speaking, greetings to you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I'm going to give you a little backstory here in just a sentence. Mary's just a teenager. There's a lot of debate about how old she is. They go as young as 12, 13, 14, up to 16, 17, 18. But no credible scholar really believes she's much older than any of that. She's just a teenager. Say, what's she doing? Doing what ordinary people do every day. You know, doing laundry, making supper, and getting water, and just doing what you do. And the angel appears to her... And greets her, and she's like, oh, oh, I'm troubled at these words. What kind of greeting is this? Verse 30. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. going to send a king to fix a broken kingdom, a broken world. He's going to get the throne of his father, David, verse 33, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants 
For how long? His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I'm going to come back to that word in just a moment. Will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Let me clue you in now to something you didn't know in a day of no cell phone, Mary. Even Elizabeth, the old lady, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And, he, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month of pregnancy right now. Mary's like, how can it be? Even Gabriel says, I've got a backstory for you. That's how it can be. It can be. Verse 37. For no word from God will ever fail. Stay with me on this verse for a minute. Don't go, don't go beyond this. For no word from God will ever fail. Would you say these words with me? For no word from God will ever fail. One more time. For no word from God will ever fail. So when you're reading your Bible this week and you're wondering why am I reading this and why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Because no word from God will ever fail. That's why. And God's people have to get back to trusting the Word of God and the proclamation of God. And even though we don't always understand His timetable, no word from God will ever fail. <clears throat> Mary's like, how can it be? Because God said it, that's how it can be, Mary. And no word from God will ever fail. Do you know that God loves you? No word from God will ever fail. He calls you His child and He says, I know what you have need of before you ask. I'm like a father. I will give you your daily bread. I will give you peace. I will give you comfort. I have planned a future. And no word of God will ever fail for you. You're his children. Look at verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. Now Mary's talking. She hears what God has to say. Now Mary needs to respond. I always think that's good. When God speaks, now we respond. And Mary said, I am... The Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now let me hasten. Mary is faced with an opportunity to be the mother of Israel's long-awaited king. Mary's now faced with a proposition from God to be the mother of Israel's long-awaited fixer, the world's fixer, really. He shall rule over all the nations, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. If you're willing, Mary, I'm going to make you the mother of the Messiah. Everything you read in the Old Testament, I'm going to do it through your life right now, if you're willing. And Mary has a decision to make. Don't ever think Mary didn't have a decision. Mary can absolutely say, no way. No way. I'm not up for it. I'm out. Too confusing, too scary, too many unanswered questions. Doesn't sound plausible. I'm out. But that was not her answer. Mary has a decision to make and her words have echoed through the ages as the very model of how we are to respond to God's will. Here I am. I am your servant. Let it be exactly as you have said. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And when you pray that prayer, you're implying let it be done in me first. Let it be done right here. I think sometimes we say, Lord, let your will be done in Washington. That's not the prayer. The prayer is let it be done right here first. Let it be done in me and then we'll flow out from there and, and see what we can change in the world. She said, in essence, in me and through me, my answer is yes. Yes, Lord. Yes is my answer. And God's people have to be very quick when God is tugging at your heartstrings to say to God... Yes! It'll change your life. Just learn to say yes to God. Alright, now let's get to what I really want to say. Luke's view of Mary. After Gabriel made God's will known to Mary, 
And after Mary has given her consent, the child's heart is now beating in the womb of Mary. Just like that. If you'd put the monitor on her womb, a heartbeat is now. Have you heard it? Sounds like horses galloping, doesn't it? When they put that monitor on, on the belly of mom, just brum, 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 brum. And you're like, wow, so calm down, kid. You're going to wear yourself out. A little heart's just beating away. Inside Mary's womb, the heart is beating away now of God's fixer, the king of the world. Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, is an old woman. She's six months ahead in her pregnancy of Mary. So Mary, having got all of this news and said yes to God, Mary says the logical thing to do now is go help my old cousin. So Mary goes, packs a bag and travels across Israel. For those of you who have been, now that's North Sea of Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem to the hill country of Judea. Mary travels across the country to help her aged cousin get things ready. Baby's on the way. She's six months long. Be here shortly. We've got a nursery to paint. We've got a baby shower to, or two to throw. We've got a lot of work to do. And so Mary said, I'll go down and help my cousin get everything ready. Maybe I'll paint the nursery. Maybe I'll be there to, to give her whatever assistance she needs with the delivery and whatever care I can give the baby while she's recovering from childbirth. Luke just fast forwards and picks the story up again now in the Judean hill country. I'm in verse 39. Mary arrives at Elizabeth's home. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. And when she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in Elizabeth, her, Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to get the scene in your mind. Mary and Elizabeth face to face in a little home in Judea. And when Mary comes into the home, God is physically present in Mary. We all agree on that. This thing which shall be born in thee shall be called the Son of God. God is present in Mary in a physical way. God in a spirit form now fills Elizabeth. Looking at Mary... God's presence is now bursting forth and invading their human reality. Now I just want to pause the story there and say on this side of the resurrection, this is the way we're to live every day. Jesus said, upper room discourse, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I'm leaving, but I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you as orphans. I will send my spirit. I'm leaving physically, but I'm going to come and dwell every one of you in spirit form. And God expects you to be a little bit of Elizabeth every day of your life. What you're about to read about her is your feeling on the other side of, uh, of Pentecost. Are you with me? Okay. I just want to be sure we're all tracking together now. And when Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse, where are you at? 40? Give me 40. Boom. When she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the babe leaped in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, what was the natural thing then that flowed from being filled with the Holy Spirit? Verse 42. In a loud voice, she began to speak. When Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, what did she do? She preached, prophesied, spoke loudly, raised her voice and worshipped, proclaimed. What is the natural outflow of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Maybe we need to go read the book of Acts again. Some people get fired up about who God is and being filled with the Spirit of God and what it means to worship God. Now, exclaimed is a good word. Hold right here on this slide. Exclaimed is a good word because when I read you what she says in a minute, there are exclamation marks all over the text. So whatever is happening, voices are being raised. Is that fair? There's emotion pouring out. We already know it's inspiration of the Holy Spirit because she's filled with the Spirit. Clearly, Luke has already settled that issue. Let me read now what Elizabeth says. <clears throat> 
in a loud voice. I'm coming back to that word exclaimed in just a minute. Park that in your brain. And a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you bear. And why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord would fulfill the promises to her. Now I'm going back to that word exclaimed very quickly. That is the Greek word anaphoneo, phoneo, phonograph, voice. Anaphoneo. It's the only time the word anaphoneo is used in the New Testament. And Elizabeth raised her voice filled with the Spirit and proclaimed anaphoneo. Under the Spirit's inspiration, she exclaimed with an intense voice. Now here's what might be very interesting to you. Not that it's the only time used in the New Testament, but in a Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word occurs five times in verb form. And all five times it occurs in the Old Testament, it's connected to worship before the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to show you every one in just a second. Anaphaneho refers to the shouts and the praises and the worship of the Old Testament worship leaders standing before the presence of God. Buckle your seatbelt. 1 Chronicles 15, 28. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts and with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps and the sound of the horn and the trumpets and the cymbals. And they made loud music on the harps and on the lyres. That electric guitar is turned up to 11. Our baggage. It's our baggage. Not Bible baggage. Passage after passage, they're using every instrument they can get their hands on and turning the volume up to ear-splitting decibels. You try that in a Baptist church today, the church will split by the afternoon, you'll have five churches in town from one. Something's wrong with us, and we need to get it fixed. And we need to get rid of our baggage and get back to a biblical text. St. Chronicles 5.13 The trumpeters and the musicians joined in unison and gave praise and thanks to the Lord. How did they do that? Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voices. Let her rip, man. Raise your voice and praise to the Lord. And they sang, He is good and His love endures forever. And the temple of the Lord was filled with what? Hold on to that cloud for a minute. That cloud keeps making appearances all through this text. That cloud was indicative of the presence of God showing up. Okay? Mary has little Jesus in her womb. She's come to the home of Elizabeth. Luke is writing this story so that you'll understand who Jesus is. And Luke is presenting Mary to you in Old Testament language so unmistakably associated with the Ark of the Covenant that you could not miss it. And yet, I'm going to guess that nobody in this room raised in church has ever heard this. Luke is presenting Mary to you in such a way that he's equating her to the Ark of the Covenant in language that is absolutely undebatable. I'm going to show you. Luke is using words on purpose. Cloud covered, overshadowed. Let me show you. Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting. Tabernacle, you with me? God's presence came down in the form of a cloud and covered the meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence came down out of that cloud. Luke 1, 35. The angel said, this is Luke describing Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will. The cloud's going to come over you. He's using Old Testament language so you won't miss what he's trying to say. When he used that word overshadow, 
that Greek word is translated as overshadow is the same language used to describe the cloud covering the tabernacle at the Ark of the Covenant. Mary's being described as a new tabernacle where God is now present in a special form. (laughs) Nowhere in the Old Testament does God show up as a baby. Okay? So I realize this is very unusual. God's showing up physically in a different form. And Luke steps back and says, I'm going to tell you a story. It needs a backstory, but I'm going to tell you a story. And here's the story. And he uses incredible Old Testament language to describe Mary as a tabernacle for God. Really, the new temple, I use this word carefully, the new temple is inside the womb of Mary. The new joining of heaven and earth. We're about to discover in a few turns of the gospel page. Jesus Christ is really the new temple, so it's being described, inside of Mary. Luke is intentionally drawing parallels between Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant as compared to the Ark of the Old Covenant. Now watch the intentionality. I'll show it to you on the screen of what Luke's about to do verbally. In the Old Covenant, wherever that Ark physically was, blessing burst out all around. I'll describe. 2 Samuel 6.11 They took the ark of the Lord and they took it up to the house of Obed-Edom. That's a guy's name. They needed to park the ark somewhere. They didn't have a permanent temple for it. You guys know the story. They parked the ark then. David said, take it up to Obed-Edom's house. We can trust this guy, godly man. Park the ark at his house for three months. And here's what it says. And the Lord blessed him and his entire house. So everything is like the Midas touch. Everything turned to gold, you know. Uh, the crops burst up and, and everything just went right for Obed-Edom as long as the presence of God was parked there uh, in, that, in that ark. Luke 1.42. I'm going back to Luke's word now. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you and blessed is the child you'll bear. I'll go Old Testament. David was humbled before the ark of the Lord. They brought the ark up to David once, and these are David's words. Second Samuel 6, 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And they brought the ark, and David's like, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Who am I that the ark of the Lord should come to me? Watch Elizabeth's words that Luke uses. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Luke's being very crafty here. Super intellect, super sharp with what he's doing. The ark was brought up in the Old Testament. Every time the ark goes up, it goes up with shouting and celebration. I'm reading 2 Samuel 6.15. While Israel was bringing up the ark of the Lord, they brought it up with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Anaphoneho. Luke 1.42. In a loud voice, she Anaphoneho, blessed are you among women. You'll remember this story in 2 Samuel 6.14 when they brought the Ark of the Covenant up. David girds himself with a linen robe, linen ephod, and goes out in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Michael, his wife, is looking out the window. And wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Leaping and dancing. Watch what Luke does. And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. They took the ark up to the house of Obed-Edom and they parked it there for three months. Pull Luke 156 up. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. Do you see what Luke's doing to you? Super clever what Luke has done. The New Testament is retelling the story of the Old Testament and just bringing it up to current speed. For those of you in my small group tonight, you know we keep talking about in our small group, Chris, the New Testament is footnotes on the Old Testament. The New Testament, they're retelling the story and bringing it fresh up to the first century Bring it back up to date with the latest developments. These are the latest developments. Mary should matter to you. Mary should matter to you. 
our tradition needs to quit ignoring one of the most important figures in the New Testament. Because Luke is telling you something about the baby by telling you something about the mother. The apostles had immense respect for Mary. So much that Luke now is comparing, likening Mary to the ark of God in the Old Testament. That mobile hot spot of the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, the Ark of Covenant in it. Mobile hot spot that moved around where people could connect with God. Now Luke's presenting Mary as a new Ark, a living Ark, where God's power and God's presence are again bursting forth into human reality. Let me give you a little backstory. They haven't had this for about 600 years. Now, when you think back to the Old Testament, you think temple and the presence of God right there in the temple. Well, that was true of the tabernacle. It was true of Solomon's temple. Presence of God came down on the dedication and remained there. But then they went into the Babylonian captivity. And all that got wiped out. Gone. And so then they came back, Ezra and Nehemiah. Do you remember these stories? And they built Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. It did not have the glory of the former temple. As a matter of fact, the presence of God did not come back down and inhabit the temple. And then 400 years between the test, there, nothing. No presence of God. Silence between the testaments. Waiting. Like dramatic silence. When the maestro steps to the stage and takes the baton and the silence falls over the room because you know something big is about to be unleashed. And the big thing about to be unleashed, Luke's describing, is God is inside of this woman. Elizabeth, when confronted with Mary at the threshold in the house, it's kind of like I think of my cell phone and about half the time around here, I'm looking for a signal. Even in the middle of the city, sometimes boop, just drops and gone. You know what I'm saying? It's as if Elizabeth's signal, heavenly Wi-Fi, just went, just pegged. Just 12 bars, if you could get 12 bars. She's standing in the presence of God inside her little teenage cousin, Mary. And Luke said, I want to record it all in language that no Jew could ever miss. I want you to be thinking of Mary as a new ark, if you would. An ark of the new covenant. And the baby is the new temple. And Jesus is going to reconnect heaven and earth. And God has now sent His fixer. The fixer is here. For hundreds of years, nothing from God. But now, God is here. He sent the King. He has come down to live with humanity. And we know He is present. And we are be I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. She has God's presence in her. So now let me go back to my original question. What do you describe? What word describes the area around God? I mean, when Moses approaches the burning bush and God begins to speak to Moses, He said, you can stop right there, Moses. Not another step. For the ground you're standing on is holy ground. So you can just take your shoes off and you can humble yourself before the living God of the universe and I'll talk with you for a while. But I can't let you see me because it just incinerates you. Just being exposed to the pure energy, just you couldn't handle this. I'll speak through the bush for a while to you. Now, what's happening is a similar retelling of the story. What do you call the area where God... I'd call it holy ground. I don't know what else to call it. Certainly something's happening here that's supernatural. I guess what I want to ask you this morning is what does it mean when we come to worship God on Sunday with our church? Do we not have a promise from Jesus on this meeting? Has He not said to us in plain language, where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I in the midst of them? Has He not told us through the songwriter of the Old Testament that God inhabits the praises of His people? And when God's people gather and begin to worship God, it's as if God overshadows the meeting and comes down in a way to say, 
I have not forgotten you. I know what your kids are going through. I know you're struggling to look for a job. I get you're struggling with your health issues. I understand you're trying to rehabilitate some situations. I get what you're going through. And no, I haven't forgotten you. I am here and I'm meeting with you. And wherever I am, you're in the presence of blessing. Let me ask you a question. What are the implications? Does God meet with us here? And if you don't think so, then I think for you it's probably true. But for we who think so, I think it's also true. I have learned in life that you get out of something what you put into it. And I don't want to be so flippant as to use a gym analogy on you. But going to the gym does nothing. For those who don't go. (laughs) Going to the gym and giving it your all does something. Going to church may do absolutely nothing for you. To come in and sit down and cross your arms and say, how dare you. I challenge you. Just, Just try to penetrate my armor and my walls. I dare you to try to get a tear out of my iPad. I challenge you to try to penetrate my hard heart, then for you it probably does nothing. Probably does nothing. But for you to prepare your heart and come into the house of God with your church family and to almost beg and yearn for the presence of God in your life in a more real way than you have it in your living room or in your car or in your office, to yearn for the presence of God to meet with your brothers and sisters together, I think you'll get what you're looking for. That's what I think. I've asked myself a few questions here. Do do we actually believe that God lives in us? Are we to bless one another when we come together in the presence of God? Seems to me in the Bible when they come together in the presence of God, everybody's blessing everybody. Blessed are you, and blessed are you, and, and God bless you, and God bless you, and God and God and God's got enough blessing for every one of us. That's what seems to be happening. I mean, I've got lots of questions about this text as I was studying this week. Are you saying that we are to raise our voices and worship God? Shall we turn up the volume? Shall we worship with our hands and our feet and maybe a little more hip? Are you saying to me, God, that holy ground is also happy ground? They seem to be tied together. Elizabeth has led in worship. Last page. Means nothing, does it? (laughs) Elizabeth has sung her song. I'll close with Mary's. Mary's going to sing hers. Mary's gospel song. Let me read it to you. Elizabeth broke out. And basically quoted the Old Testament. That's the way Luke recorded it. She's just like a worshiper in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now Mary's going to reply in song. And Mary said, it's called the Magnificat because of the opening word in Latin. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me... Unless you're Baptist. And then you won't call her anything. You won't even talk about her. Pretend like she doesn't even exist. Why? Because we're afraid of sounding Catholic. Let it go. We need to stop overreacting in the opposite direction of everything we don't like, okay? Mary's super important to us. Luke just called her the Ark of the New Covenant. Let's cut her some slack, okay? And show her a little respect. A teenage girl now starts breaking out into song. Listen to her song. From now on the nations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name, not my name. Yeah, he did something for me. Don't worship me. Holy is his name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. But He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever just as He promised our ancestors. I just say she's commenting on this statement. No word of the Lord will fail to come to pass. See her echoing that statement in Luke's translation here. So here's what I want to ask you. The story goes, backstory, fast forward six months, take a trip. They're taking big leaps in the story, but it's almost like Luke has downshifted now. Everything slows to slow motion. Why then does Luke slow down to record the words of the Psalms? This is an incredibly smart way of getting you ready for the rest of the story that he wants to tell you in his gospel. Because Mary's song is a preview. It's a foreshadowing in literature for you literature majors. Foreshadowing is happening right here. Mary's foreshadowing everything Jesus is about to step on the scene with and start preaching about. She's telling us about the gospel before there ever was a gospel. You see, Mary and Elizabeth shared a dream. It was the dream of the ancient prophets of Israel. It was the dream of Abraham. It was the dream of Moses. It was the dream of Joseph that all nations would be blessed through Father Abraham. And for that to happen, evil powers need to be toppled. This dangerous language now. This is what riles Herod up and sends the executioner to Bethlehem. This is what gets Pharaoh to pass an edict to put all the baby, kill all the babies in the Nile. These kings of the world who are evil do not want their power to be challenged. Now remember, Mary's just a teenager. Here's what I want to tell you. Almost every word of her song is a biblical quotation from the Old Testament. She's just a teenager, starts singing a spontaneous song, yet uncomposed, and she composed the song impromptu based on the scripture she had memorized. Well, pray tell, when did she memorize it? The girl can't be 16. Anybody want to help me with an answer? When did she memorize it? I guess when she was six, seven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. She was hiding God's word in her heart, and when the pivotal moment came that God filled her with His presence, her heart just overflowed everything that was stored inside from the Old Testament. And her song, as she sings it, echoes the song of Hannah celebrating the birth of a prophet and all that God would do through that boy's life. Elizabeth and Mary are singing songs about how their children are going to change the world in the hand of God. That's a song I could get in on right there. That's a song moms and dads in this room ought to be singing over their children on your knees continually. How my kids could change the world for the kingdom of God. Because once again, God is not distant. Let's end where we started. He has broken into our daily life and taken the initiative. And that also is worth singing about. Now a teenager, before a gospel's ever been preached, written, before anyone knows what's going to happen with the story of Jesus, Mary is singing in triumph 30 weeks before Christmas even happened in Bethlehem. She's already singing about it. He's coming. Going to change the world. He's going to grab the poor and bring them up just like this. The people who have suffered injustice, he's going to bring them in just like this. This is our God. Something's very broken with this world. Remember the picture we started with? Don't worry, Eve. Put your hand right here. God's king's on the way. 
And everything you know that's broken deep in your heart, the King of Kings is going to fix the problem. Mary singing about the cross 30 years before anybody knew there was going to be a cross. Mary singing about the resurrection 30 years and 3 days before anybody even knew there was going to be a resurrection. And what Mary's saying to us in this text is we can all start singing now. Because the revolution has begun. Jesus is on the way. God has not forgotten us. No word from God will ever fail. The King is coming. Here's my closing question to you. Is that what you really believe? Here's what the covenant Uh, The creed says, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. In this moment, when your heart's very tender to what I've just spoken I want to ask you on a very, very deep personal level, do you actually believe that? Your incredibly educated congregation, and I'm fearful sometimes that the educators of this world have talked you out of the supernatural. And they've talked you out of the virgin birth. They've talked you out of the miracle of Jesus And I just want to circle back to that in your heart right now. And I want you to say to God, God, I do believe. Help my unbelief. God, I do believe that. Something about what I've heard this morning, God, rings true in my heart. If you're struggling with belief this morning, then say to the Holy Spirit of God, Bear witness with my spirit what is truth. Show me what is true. Confirm to me what is true. In this moment right now, I want parents praying over their children. We need to raise up a group of children who could change the world with the hand of God upon their lives. And rather than just praying for our kids to be rich, and be healthy in this moment could God's children commit your children to the Lord and say God could you use them to change the world for the kingdom of God God do something holy and supernatural through our children it's not one or two the Bible's filled with this Samuel was the greatest prophet of a a generation. It was David's go-to man to hear from God. These are people who really changed the world. Why can't it be true of us too? We have God's Spirit in us. I want to challenge you this morning about worship. I think every time we read through some texts like this, we get new insights on how to worship. Let's move past our puritanical parents and cycle all the way back to our forefathers spiritually who had some Jewish roots who when it came to worship gave God everything they had. gave it all if you've never received Christ as your Savior I just want to say a quick word to you you can can call upon him right now he's here he's near he is not far if you just reach out to Jesus Christ he's very near the Bible says in the book of Romans that if you would acknowledge that you're a sinner You have no power to save yourself and you would call upon King Jesus as your Lord. He would forgive your sins and He would save your soul. And He would put you in a forever relationship whereby you would be adopted into the family of God and be called the child of God. John said about this, what 
manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God. If you've never done that, I want you to pray with me right now. My words won't save you. You'll have to mean this from your own heart now as you pray to God. Cry out like this, dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. God, I can't save myself. I I totally get that. And I realize, God, more clear than ever, that you are exactly who the Bible proclaimed you to be. You are God in a man's form. Come to this earth to be the king, to be the savior of the world. And this morning, God, I want to say to you that I confess my sinful state, confess my sins to you. I acknowledge your lordship. And I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sins and be the Lord and King and Savior of my life today. God, put me in that relationship through faith that I can be adopted into your family and be called your child. God, thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. And we'll go to our homes and have some afternoon lunch and rest. Give everybody just a minute to settle in here. Are you ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again, ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. God's people said, so be it. God bless you. I'll see you on Wednesday night for prayer.